Hi, everybody. When we were together live this past Sunday, before we dove into the text, I made a few remarks that I'd love to share here as well. Whether you're local here in California, in Illinois, Florida, anywhere in between, we're grateful that you're a part of our extended community via the podcast. We spent the last seven weeks in the introductory chapters of John because we love how John introduces us to Jesus, his mission and work. We also found ourselves really interested in the ways that our church's mission and values were sort of echoed through the text. Our mission, if you remember, is to follow Jesus into the world together. And we just heard bits of that throughout the way John introduced his gospel. Similarly, we found ourselves hearing our values echoed as well. Our values of sacrifice, living generously and open-handedly. Our value of openness, having practices that help us live open to what the Spirit of God is doing in us and in our community. Authenticity, being our real, regular selves and bringing that person to God who will help us be who we were made to be. Diversity, honoring the image of God and those who are different than ourselves and seeking their wholeness and flourishing. And relationship, being face-to-face with one another and growing in love together, even if it's a bit messy at times. So we found ourselves just interested in and curious about the ways that our mission and values found themselves at home in this beginning of the gospel. And it's been great to be exploring that together here as a church. But the thing about values is they're embodied. They aren't ideas that we think sound good. They are a way we choose to interact with each other. And some of us in our group in California know one another pretty well. Others of us don't know one another much at all. The thing that becomes really important at the beginning of a church's life is taking time to actually do things together, to practice things that will help embody values. This is especially true in our case because we're not moving toward a model where once we become more official or launched, then the main parts of church will happen from a stage while the rest of us watch. What we do when we gather on Sundays is a beta test of who we hope to be as we grow. We're a simple, casual dinner church that wants to create space for anybody to explore following Jesus. When we gather, we have a short sermon and a lot of participation all around it and a meal together. And whoever you are, wherever you are on your journey of faith, we're so glad you're here. That said, let's dive into the text together. We're in John chapter 4, starting in verse 3. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. This, by the way, is a little bit like when you have to fly out of LAX. I mean, you could fly out of Ontario, but it's going to cost twice as much and take twice as long for whatever route that you're on. And so LAX it is. It's a bit that way. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In addition to the setting John has offered us, it might be helpful to remember a few things. That phrase, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, is loaded for the original hearers. I actually think they might have chuckled at the understatement of it. It's a summary of a bunch of known facts. Samaritans are considered outsiders. 
they are ritually unclean. So that drinking from a shared jar would actually never happen. They're seen as people who don't get the faith, insisting on Mount Gerizim as the right spot for worship, having put the Torah as sacred but not continued on beyond it. All of this meant that some Jews actually went and vandalized and destroyed their place of worship. Beyond this, women are objectified and excluded from all sorts of roles, such as testifying in court. Their value is primarily through marriage and childbirth, which this particular woman we will see doesn't offer. We're meant to start this whole story aware of the vast chasm between the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, God made flesh, and this one Samaritan woman. Continuing in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. If you knew me, Jesus starts, if you knew me, you'd know just how great a gift I have to offer you. Jesus offers living water, which represents the spirit of God. And he calls it a spring while they sit by a well. Wells are dug deep into one spot, and we walk to them, lower our jug, heave and pull it up, carry it back for mere hours of water. Springs come to the surface and flow on their own accord. It's lavish, wasteful almost, how a spring of water just keeps on coming and flowing willy-nilly whichever way. So there's the offer, living water, the steadfast and eternal presence of the Spirit of God to sustain her. God with her in her real, regular life. It's this living water that John has been introducing us as readers to bit by bit throughout the opening chapters. Jesus is giving life to the whole world, and the Holy Spirit is available to all. And yet, for me at least, sometimes it feels like there is a barrier there, doesn't it? That a spring of living water is a bit too good to be true for someone like me or you. I mean, maybe some special spiritual people get it, or maybe certain faith styles or traditions are better at accessing it, but it can feel a bit elusive to imagine our real life sustained by the Spirit of God. The woman replies to Jesus and says, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I wonder how long it took her to reply to him there. I wonder what tone of voice she used when she replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus names the final major barrier between them. Were it any other woman, everything else would still be there ethnicity, gender, religious tensions, but she's got another problem. In a world that only cares if she can be a good wife and childbearer, she's had five husbands and is living with a sixth man. Now remember, 
Divorce can only happen if a man did it. And they could do it for basically anything, morning breath to miscarriage. If a husband died, there was sort of a replacement system for her to become a wife again for provision and protection, but she wouldn't have had any agency or autonomy in that. This woman must have been so hurt. Now, there is nothing in the text or cultural knowledge to suggest that she sinned, by the way. So it's kind of interesting how often that comes up, given that there's zero evidence. Jesus isn't naming her sin. Jesus is naming her pain. He names this final, uniquely personal detail. And with that, Jesus is moving to overcome every obstacle between them. Every obstacle between her and the spring of living water, the Spirit of God, that she can have flowing within her. This Samaritan woman is the embodiment of every barrier. And Jesus comes a boundary-crossing, barrier-breaking, borderless Savior with no intention of staying insular. He started with, if you knew me, you'd come for the life I have to offer. And now he shows, I know you and I'm coming for you. The woman answers, sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She wants clarity on what is the heart of all this distance and conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's as if she's saying, I can't get to God because this debate is just so in my way. Everyone is all hung up on there being one right way, and I am a real person caught in the crossfire. You seem to have the power to cut through this junk, so tell me. And Jesus answers in a way that actually jumps a bit from her question. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and God's worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Salvation is from the Jews because Jesus is Jewish. But instead of a place for worship, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, it's a people of worship. Instead of a temple, it's Jesus. There is no longer a single right location that drives the worship of God. However, it is still located in a person, Jesus the Messiah. And instead of some really awesome, faithful Pharisee to receive and witness this new reality, it's a despondent Samaritan woman who replies, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I imagine the next part of the story being a bit like a TV sitcom, awkward and kind of comical. Maybe a laugh track kicks in. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, the testimony not admissible in court. The woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Come and see, she says. Come and see. The would-be disciples said the very same earlier. But so far in John's gospel, which by now I hope you see is so very intentional and artfully crafted to reveal Jesus's purposes and work to us as readers. So far, only the disciples have understood Jesus. They are the only ones who've really seen. And who comes next? Jewish leaders and experts in Torah? No. Nicodemus in the end is gonna get it, but he didn't in the first encounter. No, first the disciples, these ordinary folks, then her. She's the next one John features. She is the first preacher to the Gentiles with the radical and unexpected message that the Jewish Messiah will be including them to. The heart of John's introductory chapters is come and see. And see what? What she says is, see this man who knew me. I withdrew, came to the well midday to stay isolated. And I met him and he knew me. He told me everything I ever did. We are known and wanted by Jesus. When we doubt that, I think that is a major barrier to a spring of living water that flows and gives us life. And there's all sorts of reasons we do. But here comes Jesus, crossing every barrier to remind you and me, we are known and we are wanted. As we're becoming a new church, we're basically trying to form a group to say to the Pomona Valley, come and see. And we believe that the Jesus who knows us knows our neighbors and would cross every barrier to give them life. We're not inviting people to come and see that they are sinners. We're not inviting people to come and see church. We're inviting them to come and see Jesus who knows them and wants them. We're becoming a people of worship and we're trusting the spirit of God, living water, to flow whichever way God chooses, and we will follow.